It's April 22nd, 2010. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Clive Bramham, who um, is the head of the neuroscience section at uh, the University of Bergen, Norway. He's also um, at the Bergen Mental Health Research Center and part of the Department of Biomedicine. His work on BDNF and the immediate early gene arc as regulators of LTP consolidation has been of real importance in framing the molecular underpinnings of learning processes. Hi, Clive. Hello. Around there, we have a little group today. We've got uh, Brian Derrick. Hi, Brian. Hello. And Charlie Wilson. Hi. Hi. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So I thought it was fitting since uh, LTP has a 40-year-long history, um, also sort of beginning in a Norwegian lab, that we we kind of have one broad question right. about LTP. So it seemed like um, in its early stages, and this might, might just be my perception, so correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the importance of frequency potentiation to learning mm-hmm. really didn't catch on. Mm-hmm. And then obviously mm-hmm. it picked up in the in the 80s and 90s and right. frenzied pace. Um, first of all, is, is that right? And and you know some of those key players. None of us here are real gray beards, I guess, but who lived through you know the, right. the 60s and 70s um, right. in the field. But you you do know some of those people. Yes, so do certainly. you have a sense of, of, of sort of how... Um, you know what? What were some of the prevailing ideas about cellular mechanisms of um, of learning before LTP, and how did these change after the '60s, or well, 1973, technically, I guess? Uh, well, LTP was discovered by uh, Tadia Tadia Lermo when he was a PhD student uh, in uh, Pierre Anderson's lab at the University of Oslo, and um, yeah, he was he was studying monosynaptic transmission in the dentate gyrus. And he found that if he if he applied high frequency stimulation, that he could you know, boost up his responses. You know, so it, it made life made life easier for him. So they began began doing that as a standard practice. And uh, it wasn't until I think it was 1966 or 67 he had an abstract at, at a meeting in Finland, where he you know, mentioned the possible relevance of this sort of thing for for memory. And then when, when Tim Bliss, an uh, Englishman, came to uh, work with Pierre Anderson as a, as a postdoc in, uh, a few years later, they um, together really brought, brought out LTP as a, as a phenomenon and uh, had published two original papers. Um, I think it was partly done in Oslo and partly done in back in London at, at in Tim's lab on LTP and describing it as a potential mnemonic device. And um, yeah, LTP ha- has what, what sort of they had they had n- not much understanding of um, mechanisms inside the cell uh, at, at that time in the seventies. Uh, in late 70s and early 80s, there were, there were just a handful of labs that really were, were working on LTP. Um, most of them were, well, countries that stand out are, are New, New Zealand with, uh, with um, uh, Graham Goddard, an, an epileptologist, basically, but, and uh, um, Rob Douglas from, from, from Halifax. Just a handful of labs were, were working uh, on LTP at, at the time. Um, yeah. In, in one of the anniversary papers uh, of like 20 or 30 year anniversary type things, uh, Terry Lomo had written that people really didn't get too excited about this initially and that actually one of the only people that really showed an interest in it in terms of its actual application to, to learning was John Eccles. And it really took a while. And I wonder if that's just a, 
I, you know, just a, the different pace of, of research between now and then. I mean, I, I, I have no idea, but is that, when you have any thoughts on that? I think that, that uh, in, in general, just the parts weren't we there as people to... are, are, are resistant uh, to, to these new, new ideas. Uh, and it, so it really took a while for the phenomenon of, L, of LTP to be a, the significance of it to, to be understood. One of the first people to really get into, uh, to sort things out regarding the mechanisms um, was Gary Lynch. So different I think per- Gary sort of came from a different conceptual yeah, framework. Right. Too. I think part of the problem is, were you ready for this idea? So there was a school of thought that had been looking for the Heb synapse, since Heb had said so. And those people had been disappointed. What they were seeing was habituation and depression. And so they got decided, well, maybe have had it upside down. Maybe synapses start out strong, and then the learning proceeds by removing the ones that are least useful. Mm-hmm. And then they had given up. I mean, there was a whole school of students of have, like Seth Sharpless, who had gone out looking for this kind of thing and had not seen it, and had decided to study habituation instead. I'm not sure exactly how the aplesia habituation field works into this, but they were doing they were deciding to study habituation at about the same time and maybe from a similar point of view. But and Gary was also trained as a sort of sort of theoretically oriented guy and a and had a psychology background, was in a psychology bio, psychobiology department. I think there were I think that maybe physiologists weren't looking for this, I and mean, it wasn't something they were looking for. They were looking for synaptic integration and stuff like that. And and when the two schools of thought mixed, the people were looking for mechanisms like this, and people had a mechanism like this to offer, is when it sort of exploded, uh, and people started talking about, is this a heavy end mechanism mm-hmm. or not? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think Gary is one of the guys who wrote used that word first in mm-hmm. an LTP paper to sort of and that. I think that really took off among a lot of people who thought, who had read Hebb's book a long time ago. Now, and then there was another, a lot of people said, oh, there's a book about that? You know, I read that book. <laughs> right. And, and uh, Hebb was inspired by, mentioned by Cahal, who had suggested that memory may involve uh, strengthening of the synapses, much like a muscle. So, uh, so, so there's a lot of antecedents to it. But mm-hmm. I think the point is well taken that the physiologists weren't really they, they didn't see this increase as a framework that fit Hebb's conception. David Moore had postulated that something like this had happened, too. Right. And um, so that might have been Eccles, Engelwein, and Eccles and David Moore had right. been collaborators. In. But it's interesting how these things were seen way before the relevance really became important. I mean, David Moore's work today is really uh, a, a cornerstone in a lot of our, mm-hmm. our conceptualizations of how different subregions within the campus operate. I mean, all of that was based on Mars' view of the anatomy of each subregion, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that seems to be panning out to some degree. So, so, uh, so it's it's you know, the, uh, uh, discovery is is therefore the prepared mind, I guess. Yeah, and and it was the um, Graham Collingridge's discovery of. Um, that uh, blockade of the NM day receptor, you know, block LTP, and uh, the understanding of the 
voltage-dependent block of the NMDA receptor that gave, that made the NMDA receptor a, a form of coincidence detector that uh, obeyed these heavy rules, and then things really began to, to make sense. Right. So at right. that point, I think you know it, it took off, and then new technologies um, were introduced, yeah. were uncovered, and we're used to study LTP, the electrophysiological and biochemical. Right. And a lot of people were onto that head lead. Uh, uh, I believe it was uh, uh, Goddard, McNaughton, and others who demonstrated the uh, process of cooperativity that you needed to stimulate a minimum amount of afferents, and that is to polarize the postsynaptic nerve to a sufficient amount yep. to get LTP induction. They didn't yep. call it associative LTP or refer to it as a head synapse because that tacitly implies yep. a postsynaptic integration. They couldn't rule out presynaptic interactions. So they call it cooperativity rather than assistance. Right. I mean, uh, uh, the uh, um, Chip Levy uh, figured out the the, the, temp, the temporal you know, contiguity that that was needed to get the LTP. That's before we knew anything about you know, NMDA receptors. I mean, the pharmacology was just beginning to be sort of unsolved by the, the Watkins and, and these people in, right. in Bristol. Right. Right. And it's funny that the same paper. Uh, then eventually was the predecessor for spike time independent plasticity, which now we know is quite, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. quite a, uh, important paradigm. Good. So your work um, focuses on on the detailed molecular regulation of a very specific stylized circuit response. Can you describe the process of abstracting general principles to, to cellular or even network um, level learning from such specific biochemical data, like? What I mean, what do these molecules actually mean? Okay, in, in a bigger sense. <laughs> um, yeah, let me see. I mean, I don't think that you can. Uh, somebody asked me this before. I don't think that you can understand the brain if you could record from all the neurons in the brain and record action potential activity. I don't think that you could understand the brain from that alone, uh, or make you know machines that uh, that would yeah, facilitate human brain function. I think that uh, we need to go in, inside the cells to understand you know, what gives rise to the, to the electrophysiological behavior. Um, <laughs> what was the <laughs> well, question again? The converse. Would the converse be true? Will biochemistry ever explain learning a memory? <laughs> will, it explain lear- will, will it explain learning a memory? Um, okay, so... All these things that we do are, are obviously they're, they're a part of the same. Uh, we're trying to understand the, the same system, and as usual, it's a question of you know connecting together the, these different levels, um, and we're getting closer and closer to that goal. Um, even though the, the, the molecular things, for instance, become more and more detailed, um, we're beginning to uncover the uh, you know, the diversity of molecular mechanisms. Um, we're beginning to be able to define, you know, the borders uh, of these of these molecular mechanisms, um, the framework and in which they operate, um, and uh, we're identifying being identifying the uh, the major players. Uh, we're living, you know, today in an, in an era of um, you know, systems biology, and the understanding that we have to have strong computational tools to, to put together, you know, all all this knowledge, knowledge of gene network regulation. Etc. This type of thing. Um, yet at the same time, I think there 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 there, there is now and there, and, there, and there will be for a long time in the future a need for um, a need for studies that are elucidating the roles of, of, of specific molecules. I mean, like ARC would be would be an example. 
Um, I sort of hesitate to, to say that to some extent because I don't really like the idea. Uh, I don't like the term like master switch and, the, and this, sort of, this sort of thing. It sounds like it's too much, you know. People say, well, "Why don't you use a different word?" Or uh, you know. command um, switch. Yeah, but I think, <laughs> but, but so look, so look at look at uh, so that, that. So if you're, you're immersed in the systems biology, right? But then I think back and say, think of a, of a glutamate uh, synapse. And it, so the glutamate synapse, it uses glutamate as a neurotransmitter. It doesn't use, you know, millions of different neurotransmitters. You have the, the you know, the postsynaptic den, uh, density is a, is a finite entity. Okay, it has hundreds of proteins, but yeah, it, it doesn't have thousands. And it's a specific molecular composition, a specific structure that, that has evolved based on, you know, the design principles. And, uh, yeah, and the NMDA receptor there you know, is this, is a, a type of master switch that's, that's gating calcium influx and it has these heavy type, type properties. So I think you know, in, inside the cell, you, you, you one has um, similar uh, switches and, and, and switches and toggles that are directing uh, you know, the, the rest of the, of the plasticity response. So at the transcriptional level and the post-transcriptional level in modulation of a protein synthesis at, at synapses, for instance. But it does seem like there's an awful lot. How many, yeah. How many? you say, maybe hundreds in the postsynaptic density, how many different molecules are we going to have to understand to understand the transcriptional side of mm-hmm. synaptic plasticity? Is that going to be hundreds? Is it going to be 26? Would you care to make a prediction? I think it's going to be 27. I'm thinking we're 26. So you're 28. Yeah. Let me see. I mean, so if I think of synaptic plasticity, it's also a question of just maintaining maintenance of the synapse itself as an entity because the proteins are constantly being turned over. So it involves the uh, the whole active genome. Maybe the, the the parts that itself can also be regulated through through epigenetics, right? So opening the different areas of the chromatin for being being available for use. Um, yeah. So that's broadening the question a little more than what I intended. Right. So if I'm thinking <laughs> about something like what determines the the specificity of synaptic of of, of uh, synaptic changes in, in learning. Right. So why one synapse changes and one another nearby one on the same cell doesn't, and that we think that must be really critical for the learning process is mm-hmm. that synapses don't just change willy nilly, but specific ones do, mm-hmm. and just the right ones. And so, for the for determining something like that, how many how much biochemistry is engaged in that one process? Can we help to learn about five? But isn't biochemistry the only answer to the question of tagging? I mean, that, that fundamentally is a, a biochemistry question, right? Sure, I was just wondering about yeah. how complicated the answer is going to be. I mean, be. I think well, I think that you have uh, – um, you can have – one example would be if you stimulate a synapse and, and uh, through signaling cascades that are activated by glutamate receptors – um, you have modulation of the actin cytoskeleton, so you, you get an expansion of the, of the actin cytoskeleton, which is like filling the spine head, and there are different pools of this uh, of these actin filaments. Um, so, if if uh, a, a, an RNA like ARC 
is critical for making a long-lasting change. But we know that uh, Ossie Stewart showed that that, that uh, this uh, increase in the F-actin is uh, necessary for the, for the docking of the RNA to that specific synapse, let's say. Right? So there you have a tagging event, really simple. And the ARC RNA docks, and then you have the... Uh, is the, 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 the synthesis of, of ARC, which is um, promoting the, uh, the, the synthesis of ARC is promoting the, the stabilization of, of, the, of the nascent F-actin. Uh, so how many players are involved? Well, if, as I um, was alluding to mentioning in, in my talk earlier today, that you know, if actin actually plays a role in regulating protein synthesis itself, then... Um, that could be then ha happening locally uh, in the spine uh, to to be involved in the in the growth process uh, in the spine to be involved in the in the remodeling uh, of the postsynaptic density these hundreds of proteins that that one is talking about so I think that uh, you know, so, so you have some protein synthetic events that are are, are happening very rapidly in time and mobilized very rapidly and um, you have also shuttling, trafficking of proteins in and out of the PSD as it you know, changes its shape and uh, expands in size. The arc signaling is it. It begins at induction because it seems like the short, the early phase of LTP and the late phase are, are mod, they're modulated very differently. We know that an arc is involved in the later phase and. and, and Rather than the initial phase, can you take us through a little bit of some of the some of the sequence of events and and also some of the local versus global, some, what's dendritic versus nuclear as a teaching tool? Okay, I'll try. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think the that the model the model that that's, that that's suggested, but by our data, and it's still there's no there's lots that needs to be worked out. But it's helpful to have a to have a model. And that is that you, that you have the, uh, uh, when you stimulate the synapse, you uh, get the release of BDNF. Um, that release is dependent on NMDA receptor activation, as is the induction of LTP. Okay, that, that, that BDNF signaling is, uh, uh, acts through ERK, right, the MAPK pathway, to induce ARC. Uh, it happens rapidly. The messenger RNA is then, uh, um, good portions of it at least, are trafficked out, out, out into dendrites. So then we think that the, you have a, 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 local, a local capture of the ARC mRNA by the cytoskeleton. And that's when, at that point, uh, the ERK the, the signaling locally in, in the spine uh, stimulates the, the, the synthesis of, of the ARC protein. And that synthesis has to be, has to be maintained during, during a window that, that's necessary for the consolidation of LTP. A sustained synthesis. So for reasons that we don't fully understand, um, the, for why it's happening, that the ARC mRNA and the ARC protein are both rapidly degraded. So, you, but anyway, you have this this period of, of sustained ARC synthesis, and 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 uh, you know, if you block that, then you don't get this stable increase in, in F-actin. Okay. So I think you have have the spine, and you have um, a, a growth of the cytoskeleton. And, uh, and that growth you know, is involved in, in, in a morphological change. You get a bigger synapse, simply, right? Uh, bigger so a bigger synapse that can be the mechanical, the, the uh, mechanical force of, of the actin polymerization, which is uh, making, causing the membrane to, to um, 
to push out. But we have BDF uh, being triggered at neurogenesis and other non-activity dependent events mm-hmm. also. So how, how specific is this to, um, I mean, what, I, I guess ARC is a more generic molecular um, player, right? So is it's, I mean, ARC, ARC is interesting because it, it can, it's able to mediate different kinds and, and seemingly opposing forms of synaptic plasticity in terms of the, the direction of the change itself. So it can it can mediate LTP and it can mediate LTD, MGUR dependent LTD. So what what is you know c- controlling this this switch? And you know, from a cell biological point of view, uh, you know, ARC is it, an LTP consolidation. So you have ARC giving rise to this change in F-actin, okay, and you know that that's that this is necessary to get the, the, this growth process. But what 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 does that uh, what is the F-actin actually doing? So I think that that is going to be it's going to take a, a number of years to really sort of sort that out. And what we mentioned today, uh, what I mentioned earlier, is that we're, we're looking at the possible role of of F-actin in regulating protein synthesis in the spine. And uh, there's already you know, good evidence that this is actually occurring uh, in uh, presynaptically in in growth cone turning uh, in in axons. So are people visualizing this stuff yet? Are they looking at? Are they visualizing changes during learning? I mean, is this possible in vivo? To, to, will it be possible? Is, it, is anyone doing changes it? in actin? In actin, or even in, in arc expression, even at the you know yeah, basic um, level. Yeah, you can. Um, there are different ways to go about it. Um, uh, one of the approaches that's been used re- recently to, to image arc synthesis is the use of, of, of a hundred base pair. An element called the synaptic activity response element, the SER element. Um, this was discovered by Haruhiko Bito, the University of Tokyo in Japan. And um, for a long time, we didn't know much about what's regulating arc, arc, arc transcription. Um, we thought it was that, that CREB was involved. There was evidence that cyclic AMP cyclic responses in CREB was involved, but there was no CRE at least not within not the first 2,000 bases upstream of the, of the transcription initiation site. But then... So that means no place for cyclic AMPJ. Yeah, no, yeah, no place. It didn't make sense, exactly, right? But then um, a, a couple of groups, it was uh, the uh, Steve Finkbeiner's group and Harhi Gobito, um, they found enhancer elements that were like far, far away, like 7,000 7, base pairs away. But there's, there's this little 100 base pair region that if you take it, you know, you can you can use that uh, as a reporter system to, to image uh, arc protein synthesis, and they, the beta group actually did this in vivo. I think they they, they used dark in the visual cortex. I'm not sure if they used dark rearing or what it was. They did, but they were able to to image arc synthesis, and this is something that uh, that we'd like to be able to to do. That that's now we're just talking about about arc transcription, not protein synthesis. And there are other reporter systems that that you that one can use to to image. Um, Local protein synthesis, but that hasn't been done in vivo, not yet. So it sounds like you're talking about all the, I mean, LTP. So it's it's, it's pretty ubiquitous all over the place, and the molecular players are really the same from CA1 versus um, you know, amygdala. I mean, is that the idea that this is sort of a, a basic thing that you'd see in any area that expresses LTP? Is LTP the same everywhere? No, I don't think it's the well, same. Well, it's seen everywhere. I, yeah. mean, I mean, at least in a, as a phenomenon. It's widespread as a, as a phenomenon. Um, and um, 
the, the mechanism the, the mechanisms uh, are do differ between brain regions, uh, even though you have some of the common some of the players uh, are the same. So, for instance, ARC, uh, you know, it is necessary for, for LTP consolidation in CA1 as well, um, but uh, we know that you know, the time course of the, of the ARC mRNA uh, and protein increase is you know, much shorter in time, much shorter lasting than what we see in the dentate gyrus. So the dentate gyrus has this protracted window um, over two hours, Whereas in CA1, you see, John Gazowski has seen the ARC mRNA go, go up and down within, I think, about you know, 20, 30 minutes. It's already gone. And behaviorally, you also see this difference. So with uh, spa spatial exploration, um, you see brain region-specific differences in the, in the dynamics of the ARC RNA and, and, and protein. Does that make sense to us? I mean, if we think, I mean, I don't yeah. expect it to make just sense in detail, but I was thinking, well, well, if we if we know something about the the dimensions over which LTP in different parts of the brain differ from each other, would that be a clue about what each one of them's job in learning is, or or is would there be a systematic one one way? I mean, if I was designing a biochemical mechanism for LTP, I might want to build into it these directions in which it could vary so that you could have a mm -hmm. you know, arm delay here and a short right. delay there. Right, right. Does any of that stuff make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the idea of, uh, we were just talking about Ooh. this yesterday, of the idea of there being different forms of LTP. We were wondering, <clears throat> um, there was some recent data we were talking about suggesting that really it's only the induction mechanism that differs, where one synapse requires... A, definitely a high-frequency burst to get the release of, say, neuropeptides, and another synapse does not. Um, but that's all it differs. The, the, there's a common final pathway, and it's essentially the same mechanism. Um, now, that, that's interesting, because what it suggests is if, if, let's say, LTP is one common mechanism, and all neurons use it, and uh, the only difference is the way it's induced, then what that suggests is that different synapses have different constraints on when they can actually become plastic. Some synapses may require very high-frequency activity and very mm -hmm. intense activity mm -hmm. in order to change. Some mm -hmm. may do it very easily, mm -hmm. and they yeah. may give may imbue that with some mm -hmm. functional relevance. Mm -hmm. But I think the only way to really know whether or not different forms of LTP exist, the induction mechanisms tell you different induction mechanisms, mm -hmm. but they don't tell you that the downstream mechanisms necessarily mm -hmm. are different, too. They may be identical. So that's where the biochemistry... But it may be different. <laughs> yeah, they may be. In fact, the, the data you had today suggesting that the ARC roles in CA1 yeah. versus dentate were that's very right. different, right. suggests different forms of LTP. Yeah, so I think that when we, you, know, you, you do your experiments and you see these differences, um, you wonder, one wonders, what does this mean functionally? Mm -hmm. So the, the, the dentate gyrus not just has a slab of tissue as a place that's, that's convenient for, for doing the in vivo electrophysiology, but what does that actually mean for the, the function of, of, of the structure? And that's when you think about, about the anterorhinal hippocampal loop and, and this extra long time window of consolidation where the, uh, the memory trace, if you will, is, you know, remains labile and, and can be modulated. So the question is, how does that, does that tie in in any way with uh, the um, computational role of the, of the dentate gyrus in... in um, and in pattern separation or sparsification, sort of thing. 
Does that make? Does it? Yeah. Does it make sense? Yep. Why? Why would the Dente gyrus need to be to have this long period for consolidation compared to? Well, um, it, it may be simply because uh, the current view is, is that is that at some point information that's encoded within the hippocampus is transferred to the neocortex where it becomes independent from the hippocampus. And that's the other consolidation, the other kind of consolidation. And there are still people who maintain, and, uh, and, and, and I'm sort of neutral on this because I think it's a, an interesting idea and I'm not quite sure who would be right. But some people maintain that there's something of a residual trace within the hippocampus and that's mm -hmm. necessary because at some point in time, a particular memory is going to become independent of the hippocampus. And then later on, you may experience something that's semantically related to that information, but doesn't have any connection with the hippocampus. So how do you get that new hippocampal information that's really related to the old consolidated information together? You really need to have some kind of a, a residual trace within the hippocampus to somewhat connect them up. So some people have suggested that the dentate and the persistence of granule cells way beyond the time when we think they're still very useful may underlie that kind of skeletal remains of what was in older members. Yeah, there we go. So you need to be able to cross-reference all your... Exactly. Memory. One of the great things about memory is that it is that it is nicely cross-referenced. It is. Compared to other forms of information storage that I use, <laughs> which are not very nicely cross-referenced. Yeah. <laughs> oh and in fact, I have to... Uh, yeah, right. I always have to help out my computer's uh, memory storage with my knowledge of what's connected to what. Right. And none of this, um, none of what I hear people talking about when they're talking about memory mechanisms at the cellular level ever seem to offer me much and to understand how that cross-referencing would work, how related memories somehow invoke each other, uh, mm -hmm. even though they were created at really different times. Anyway, you're not going to tell me how. Well, <laughs> presumably the consolidation within the neocortex is done in a way that, that takes much more time. It's done during sleep, presumably slow wave sleep, and uh, apparently categorizes and, and associates the information in a way that's very different than the way we originally learned the association. That's, that's, that's as much as we really know, I guess, in terms of... But, but whether or not the hippocampus mm -hmm. is absolutely not needed for either uh, uh, retrieval of very old information or to associate new information with previously stored old information is really not known yet. So. Now, one thing I think is that when you, if you dis discover that this protracted time window in the dentate gyrus, um, then uh, you know, it can guide further behavioral experiments. It can make you start thinking about you know, that issue and that, that okay, it's, it is different in, in, in C1, so in, in the dentate gyrus. So how does that, uh, what, what behavioral functions does that subserve? Yeah, I have maybe a, we don't know. We don't yeah. know what it means because mm -hmm, we but have to ask the question so, because so, so, we so, never know that there is a difference. Right, exactly. So make sure you're thinking, hey, here's the, here's the dentate. This, this is in, it still remains in the label state for things that have already been consolidated here. Why, you know, why, why is that? Right. Well, there are yeah. some hypotheses about that, and one sort of related to neurogenesis, and that is, is that new neurons are sort of labile in the dentate for a certain period of time. And it's thought that, that during the cell cycle for those groups of neurons that are able to survive, that any information learned during that time is encoded within these new surviving neurons. And they go on to mature and then become somewhat refractory. 
So what you have, in essence, is an episodic memory, which the hippocampus is really apparently important for, it would be able to use similar granule cells to encode memory within a larger time window, mm-hmm. giving you more of an episodic like uh, a mm-hmm. window for a, a, mm-hmm. a given set of associative memories. Yeah. And then, say, 18 to 24 hours later, after a cell cycle for the granule cell, uh, or you know, whatever the window is for ARC, uh, a new associations would be made. And that, that's, that's one possibility. And that is, so the idea would be here is that the dentate is, in a way, associating all information that was learned associatively over a lot larger time period right. to allow for right, right. episodic memories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what happened yesterday? You can make a list of things. Right. So. Is LTP enough to, to account for memory? Uh, no. I'm sort of claim that it was. Nobody's saying nobody's saying that. I don't think. But I, I, I'm wondering yeah, less is it and possible less so. to make a definitive. I mean, Heb sort of assert, asserted that it was, and he offered an explanation of how some, at least some of the features of memory could be accounted mm-hmm. for. So I'm just wondering: is it possible, without knowing all the cellular mechanisms all the way through, without knowing everything, is it possible just to say, in principle, yes? You could make, you could in principle make a machine that could have all the features of memory that we have using this one mechanism. It is enough, or even if it isn't the only one that exists, it, you could um, make an equivalent machine out of it. Or no, absolutely not. There are certain features of memory that you can't account for at all. I, let mm-hmm. me just say, uh, for right. example, because I know it's too vague a question to answer, and I, I can't fix it, make it less vague, but. How about the really, really, really long-lasting memories? Mm-hmm. Uh, can those be encoded just by changes in the size of postsynaptic densities that just last really, really, really a long time? I think that uh, that in the adult in the adult brain, um, let me see, in the adult brain, you don't you don't have wholesale turnover of spines, but just this morphing. Uh, of the spine size, and so those, so the spines are very stable. So at least from from a structural point of view, and at least certain parts of the brain, um, that I would think that that, that is a possibility. Uh, the proteins themselves, of course, are being constantly turned turned over, and so we don't, uh, as I was leading to before, we don't really know that much about how the uh, steady state level of protein expression at the synapse is you know, being being maintained. Over time, so maybe but, it's possible uh, for there, for some biochemical mechanism to say, "Look, this synapse mm-hmm. has already mm-hmm. changed, right. and it's being used to hold a key piece of information. Don't <laughs> yeah. mess with it; leave it alone." <laughs> yeah. We have processes like that that work that way because because all of the experimental data that you hear is people saying, "Look, I can take a any old synapse you pick, yeah. and I can make it. Uh, right. I can potentiate right. it." And so it makes you feel like synapses maybe are getting reused all the time for for learning, but if that happened, eventually everything would be forgotten. Right. And not everything is. Lots of things are forgotten, but not everything is forgotten. Right. Well, That's a difficult one. <laughs> yeah, it seems to me, though, that, that a solution to it that appears to, to have been conserved in evolution is uh, a buffer store and then a more permanent store, because that, that is true with birds. I think. That explains it yeah, currently. Yeah. Anyway, you move it someplace else. Right. Move to diverse learning in, yeah. in, in young birds and young chicks. But if the biochemical mechanism is the same, then it's going to be 
equally labile. It just seems to me there has to be a yeah a, a qualitative, or maybe not even a qualitative, just a a, a place where things don't change so that much. much. So it, wouldn't it be interesting if the most important parts of the brain for storing memories are the ones in which we don't see any synaptic plasticity? It would almost have to be. Yeah, and and in fact, the, um, Ron Racine is probably one of, one of the people who's looking at this most, but he's looking at cortical plasticity. And you do get it, but it takes a long time. You have to stimulate it a lot, and you have to do it repeatedly over time, and you get this incremental increase, and it seems to be per- somewhat permanent. So, but all the feed, the feed forward inhibitory circuits there, right. and again, that might have something to do with it. Uh, right. right. But the thing is, that the mechanisms, as we move away from the hippocampus to cortex, I think we'll be able to answer that question, because my guess is that the mechanisms, although they may use NMDA receptors or similar receptors to the hippocampus, that the actual mechanisms that subserve the long-term changes in the neocortex might be very different than the hippocampus. And so the hippocampus will be the temporary repository, and, and the, uh, the long-term yeah. store will use qualitatively. So to, we should go looking for the place in memory where the engram is stored. Is it, it's yeah. the place that has no synaptic plasticity. But, you know, I don't think, I don't think that that place exists. <laughs> I don't, but I, but I, I, I understand your question. And I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a good answer. I mean, I would think, indeed, that you know, any given given synapse will be involved in the, the storage of you know multiple memories, one way or another. So it's that uh, difficult you know, systems level question. And well, then there's some interesting things that uh, models and uh, uh, local learning rule models that have been used, like the DCM theory, that would allow for not only normalization but would allow for neurons that have been used to not participate in, in uh, similar memories by sort of being opted out once they've been potentiated, their threshold for LTD greatly increases, so they can't participate in it. Neurons, not synapses. Well, yeah, in the classic DCM rule, it is, it is synapses, but the dentate gyrus is an unusual trait in that it shows input-specific metaplasticity, and that is, is that they see metaplasticity only in those synapses that were activated. It isn't so wide. So that's why that exists there. It's not seen other places that I know of. So why that is that's mm-hmm. in the dentate. Mm-hmm. The dentate also shows cell white uh, uh, type BCM rules. So both of those exist in the dentate. And why that is, no one's no one knows. And I don't think anyone's addressed. I had a teacher that learned fourteen languages, worked for the UN. And he told me he couldn't remember any of our names, any of our students <laughs> right. in class, because all of his synapses were occupied remembering these fourteen languages. I, you know, you know what I do. I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> I had the, I had the same thing. I have lab meetings, you know, and the people are sitting there. And I'm like, oh no, I can't remember that person's. Can't remember their name because you know? there's all this other stuff <laughs> stored in the brain. There's, there's the I, mean, I know the name perfectly well, of course. Not that I don't, don't know it, but I can't bring it up. It's retrieval. Yeah. You can give him, You can give that excuse. You can say. When you know as much stuff as I know. Yeah, you come back with attitude. That's it. Come back with attitude. No, I think there's a confounding variable of aging here, so we have to watch that one. It's a whole other podcast, aging. (laughs) Well, thanks for being with us, Clive Brennan. Thank you very much. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks. Yeah, good.